railroaded the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. No American is safer because Ross Ulbricht is in jail for life. He is just one more casualty in our futile war against drugs. That is a quote from John Stossel. Hello and welcome to the Railroaded Podcast. This is part five of an eight-part series and is about the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. My name is Gary Leland, also known as the Crypto Podcaster. You may have heard me on other podcasts such as the Crypto Cousins or the 4-Minute Crypto Show. Now, Railroaded is a podcast series revealing behind-the-scenes information you've probably never heard before. This is a peek into the inner working conflicts in the Silk Road story, and you'll meet the people involved. Now, I didn't produce the Railroaded content that you're about to hear. I'm just distributing it as a podcast to help it reach a larger audience. I hope that the more people that know about Ross's situation, the better his chances are of being freed. The information in this podcast is based on the public record and should not be attributed to myself, Ross Ulbricht, Lynn Ulbricht, or anyone connected with freeross.org. I'm not responsible for and do not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in this series. Railroad was created by the Free Ross team and is narrated by Adrian Basson. On today's episode, you will hear Chapter 15, The Cover-Up, Chapter 16, Eviscerating the Defense. Now it's time for the show. Railroaded, the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. Narrated by Adrian Bassan. The following is based on public information sources, including court filings, transcripts, trial exhibits, affidavits, warrant applications, subpoenas, judicial rulings, investigation reports, press releases, sworn testimony, and direct evidence. Some gaps remain due to government protective orders, redactions, sealed records, missing records the court cannot account for, dropped investigations, tampered evidence, communications and other data that remain encrypted, and the fact many of the parties involved have not testified. Even so, Every effort has been made to accurately present the available evidence surrounding the creation, investigation, and shutdown of Silk Road, and the prosecution of Ross Ulbricht. Chapter 15. The Cover-Up Joshua Dreytel, criminal defense attorney, said, It is obvious the government is more interested in protecting its unfairly obtained conviction of Mr. Ulbricht than investigating fully or effectively the misconduct of its corrupt agents. This is a continuing travesty of justice. Once Ross was arrested and the Silk Road website seized, Force and Bridges were under pressure. If it were discovered that they sold inside information to DPR, extorted and threatened him, broke into the site through Green's accounts, and used that access to steal funds, they would both be sent to prison. In April 2014, Force started using Tor to connect to Bitstamp, a Bitcoin exchange similar to Mt. Gox. As part of their fraud and theft prevention procedures, Bitstamp inquired as to why he was using Tor to access their site. I utilize Tor for privacy, Force told them. Don't particularly want NSA looking over my shoulder. 
Smiley face. Bitstamp's management found Force's reply strange and froze his account immediately. A few days later, Force got help from Bridges, who convinced Bitstamp to unfreeze Force's account, allowing him to make additional transfers. Force then emailed Bitstamp and asked them to delete all transaction history associated with his account, but it was already too late. California AUSA Catherine Hahn opened an official investigation into both Force and Bridges that same day. By early May, Force resigned from the DEA and quickly began hiding the money he'd extorted and stolen. He wired $235,000 to an offshore account in Panama just a few days after learning of the government's investigation. By the end of May, he had legal representation and attended an official interview where he was interrogated by Hahn. Bridges was also interviewed with his lawyer and a high-level superior from the U.S. Secret Service multiple times. Bridges and Force intentionally misled and lied to Hahn about their relationship to each other and their involvement with DPR, Silk Road, and Bitcoin. The corruption threatened Barrara and Turner's case against Ross. If a jury were to learn the extent of Force and Bridges' involvement in undermining and corrupting the investigation, it would cast strong doubt on their version of events. Ultimately, Turner revealed to the defense that Force was under investigation, but argued to Judge Forrest that no mention of him be made to the jury. Turner's disclosure was functionally the same as no disclosure at all, because Ross and Dreytel could not use it at trial. Even more outrageous, Turner hid Bridges' involvement entirely from both Judge Forrest and Dreytel. They did not know he existed. Having alerted Carpellas that the U.S. government had him on its radar, and having infiltrated Silk Road, Bridges was ostensibly too entwined with Carpellas for Turner to risk revealing his corruption, even though he was required by law to reveal anything that might be helpful to Ross. On December 15, 2014, a few weeks before trial began, Judge Forrest held a hearing to get to the bottom of this issue. However, she sealed it off from the public. No reporters were allowed to observe, and Ross's family was forbidden to attend. At the hearing, Turner was joined by his co-counsel, Timothy Howard. They argued that the investigation into Force's corruption must be kept secret. If Force were to discover that he was a suspect, he might flee, hide money, or destroy evidence. Of course, Force had already known for eight months that Hahn had him under investigation, and Turner knew that. The only reason for maintaining secrecy was to deprive Ross of the use of the information. The government misled the court, Dreytel said later at a press conference. The agents knew exactly what they were being investigated for, so the notion that keeping it secret was essential to the investigation, or even helpful to the investigation, was simply not true. This was not the only falsehood that Turner put forth in court. Judge Forrest also asked him how deeply Force had penetrated Silk Road when he and Bridges took over Green's admin account. Could he have faked being someone else? The judge asked. No, you can't do that, no, Turner replied. But that's exactly what did happen. Bridges had taken over the accounts of vendors, effectively becoming them online, all while pretending to be Green. 
He didn't receive root administrative privileges. He didn't have privileges to do anything on the site. Howard went on to say, What was the list of what Green could do? She then asked. He had the ability to reset passwords and PIN numbers. And if he could reset passwords and PIN numbers, could he have utilized their accounts? Could he have reset any password? That's something we would have to confirm and look at, Howard equivocated. Of course, if Force could reset passwords and PINs, he could take over accounts, as he did with the vendors he stole from. In fact, with Green's administrator privileges, Force could have reset the PIN on DPR's account and usurped control of it, even without DPR losing access. He could have changed anything in the Silk Road database, including message texts in the forum or market, all without the government's knowledge of what precisely he did. Turner was determined to keep this information from leaving the sealed hearing or being argued before the jury. He told Judge Forrest deliberate and calculated lies, and she ultimately ruled in favor of the government. This is tactical at this point, Dreytel interrupted. It's designed to keep this information from our use at trial that's going to come in three weeks so they can publicize it two months down the road when they indict this guy and we are prohibited from using it in defense. It's just a violation. It would, in fact, be just seven weeks after Ross's trial that Force and Bridges were indicted and their corrupt activity on the Silk Road site publicly revealed. Dreytel asked that the trial be pushed back until the government had completed its investigation of Force, which would defeat Turner's intention of keeping Force out of Ross's trial. Judge Forrest denied that, too. Chapter 16. Eviscerating the Defense Robert Murphy, senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, said, The trial was conducted in a manner apparently designed to secure a guilty verdict. Some of the judge's decisions were baffling to any neutral observer. A couple of months before the trial began, Schumer publicly convicted Ross in an open letter to U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, tainting him in the minds of potential New York jurors. The Silk Road was shut down by the FBI, he wrote, and I am pleased that the DOJ is currently prosecuting its operator and holding him accountable. This was despite the foundational tenet of our justice system that a defendant is innocent until proven guilty. Judge Forrest influenced the jurors further, before trial, by anonymizing them hiding their names from the public and from Ross. This is a rare and extreme measure that communicates to jurors that they must be protected from a dangerous defendant. Consequently, they are prejudiced against him before they even enter the courtroom. By law, the judge may make this decision only after she considers the arguments of the counsel, offers the jurors an explanation that does not cast the defendant in an unfavorable light, and makes her ruling on the record. Judge Forrest did none of this, and actively concealed from the public and Ross the fact that an anonymous jury had been impaneled. Then, with the jury selected, the judge went further and intervened on behalf of the government, telling the jurors that all of the evidence that you are going to need to render a verdict will be received into evidence at this trial. Of course, 
there is only one party with the burden of proof at trial, and that is the government. So when the judge told the jury they would receive all the evidence they needed, she vouched for the strength and sufficiency of the government's evidence. Around this time, protesters began to demonstrate outside the courthouse, carrying signs like, Life for a website? Web hosting is not a crime, and other slogans. People also distributed pamphlets informing jurors of their rights, responsibilities, and authority. Judge Forrest took exception to this and threatened to sequester the jury and implement additional procedures unless the demonstrators desisted by the next morning. Dreytel argued that this would hurt Ross because it would send jurors the message that Ross was a danger to them. He also argued that Ross had no control over citizens exercising their rights to free speech. However, the judge did not relent, and not wanting to harm Ross, the demonstrators reluctantly disbanded. As trial began, Howard laid the government's case out to the jury in opening arguments. He had to convince them that Ross had not only created Silk Road, but operated it continuously until it was finally taken down two and a half years later. Ross had to be the only person behind the DPR accounts and responsible for all the drugs and other contraband sold on the site. Howard also had to convince the jury that all the Silk Road files on Ross's laptop were his, that they had not been tampered with or planted there. Turner called Duryagin to the stand as the government's first witness. Duryagin outlined a sanitized version of his investigation, never mentioning Carpellis and focusing on his role as Cirrus during Ross's arrest. However, Turner's presentation wasn't meeting Judge Forrest's standards. At break, she told Turner that Duryagin had described Tor in a way that was just mumbo-jumbo to most people on the jury right now. There is still room for clarity. Turner applied her coaching and began the second day of testimony by having Duryagin re-explain what the Tor network was, how it worked, and what it allowed for, complete with a demonstration. This intervention by the judge had a clearly perceptible effect on the quality and clarity of Turner's presentation of evidence from that point forward in the trial. The rules of criminal law require the government to provide certain information to the defendant before trial begins, such as notes and communications the government's witnesses had made during the course of their investigation. Less than two weeks before trial began, Turner dumped on Ross and Dreytel 5,000 pages of records pertaining to Duryagin alone. Buried in this mountain of material was the defense's first glimpse into Duryagin's investigation of Carpellis and how McFarland and the rest of the Baltimore office had undermined it and allowed Carpellis to slip away. During cross-examination, Dreytel brought up Carpellis and started to explore how Duryagin had targeted him. You wanted to know what was going on with Baltimore, he said to Duryagin. You wanted to know what was going on with the meeting with Carpellis's attorneys. You wanted to know what was out there because you had your own parallel independent investigation of him going on that would be completely wiped out by what Baltimore was doing. Yes, Duryagin replied, and we had verbal agreements with the attorneys in that district also about that. And so, in the course of this and in pursuing your investigation, you learned that Carpellis's lawyers had made that offer to the government? 
Draytel asked next. But before he could clarify to the jury that Carpellis had offered someone else to target as DPR instead of himself, before he could ask whose name was given, or if that name was Ross Ulbricht, Turner leaped up and began to repeatedly object. Rather than follow the usual protocol and call a private sidebar, Judge Forrest dismissed the jury early and asked Draytel where his questions were leading. They were going to meet with Carpellis, Draytel explained, and this meeting was supposed to be in Guam, and I don't know whether this meeting ever occurred. At the mention of Guam, an NSA stronghold, Turner launched into a prolonged argument as to why Carpellis should not be discussed. However, the judge did not see a legal justification for this. We can all agree it's obviously highly relevant, right? She said. If the lead investigator believed in August 2013 that somebody else might be a candidate, Turner would not relent, but the judge could not justify sustaining his objections. I'm going to allow Draytel to ask what was the basis for Duryagan's view that somebody else was an appropriate target, she said. That strikes me as in the heartland of this defense. Turner then argued that Duryagan's investigation, based on government evidence, was irrelevant. I don't think it's irrelevant, Judge Forrest retorted, because if he pursued a target and it wasn't Ross, I think that's directly relevant. They're trying to raise reasonable doubt as to whether or not Ross is the real DPR. How else do you do it? I mean, I haven't even looked at the document extensively, Turner replied. I haven't had a chance to talk to the witness about it. I haven't had a chance. You can't talk to the witness about it anyway during the pendency of an examination, she interrupted. And this is an issue which, in light of the defendant's interest in this, we'll hold it open until Tuesday morning. In papers filed over the weekend, Turner admitted that the meeting with Kay had indeed occurred. However, he claimed that it wasn't Ross's name given, but the name of someone else entirely. When the trial reconvened, the judge had performed a complete about-face. She now ruled that any cross-examination about whether or not Duryagan suspected Carpellis, or found probable cause to believe he was DPR, was off-limits. An interview, in which DPR said he took over the site from its previous owner early on, was banned from being mentioned to the jury. This was despite Duryagan's belief that it was Carpellis speaking as DPR. Draytel was not permitted to ask about how Carpellis gave Kay someone else to target just before Ross was arrested. Essentially, all further testimony regarding an alternate perpetrator was now found to be irrelevant. Judge Forrest went further and struck Alder Yegan's testimony about Carpellis from the record, preventing it from being built upon with further questioning or used in closing arguments. She instructed the jury to disregard it. I'm not sure I can proceed, Draytel pleaded. Now I have to go back and reconstruct all of this material. I'd like a break until tomorrow. No, replied the judge. I'm done with this issue. I'm not suggesting you should like it or agree with it, but it's how we're going to proceed. She then called in the jury, and Draytel did his best to reintroduce as much as he could of Carpellis's involvement, but to no avail. Turner objected to virtually every question, 100 times to be exact, and Judge Forrest sustained most of them.
However, Dreytel had other questions for Duryagan. Before trial, Turner was required to provide to Ross and his defense all the evidence he had seized or collected in the course of the government's investigation. It amounted to approximately four terabytes of information, equivalent to two billion typed pages. Despite having just a few months to comb through it, Ross and his team uncovered a conversation between DPR and Force acting as death from above. When Dreytel began questioning Der Jägen about this at trial, Turner was initially taken off guard, as he didn't know about the existence of Force's alias Death From Above. Once he realized that Dreytel's questions were leading to Force, Turner objected and got Judge Forrest to prevent Dreytel from cross-examining Der Jägen with respect to communications between DPR and Death From Above. Turner immediately informed Hahn of this new revelation about Force's alias. She retraced Dreytel's steps and confirmed that Force was indeed behind the Death From Above account. Turner used Dreytel's cross-examination of Duryagin to continue his investigation of Force, then blocked it from being used at Ross's trial during the course of the trial itself. At every turn, Turner convinced Judge Forrest to suppress anything that could lead to revealing the truth about Forrest and Carpellis. This included the conversation between Not Wonderful and DPR. Despite Turner including it in his initial exhibit list, he had it blocked too, realizing that it would hurt his case by showing that DPR was tipped off by corrupt law enforcement. For a written version of this episode, plus citations and footnotes, go to freeross.org slash railroaded. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to help Ross, please consider signing and sharing Ross's clemency petition at freeross.org slash petition. Over 190,000 people have signed it so far. We should hit 200,000 people pretty soon. For additional information, visit freeross.org. You can also follow Ross on Twitter at RealRossU, and the U is just the letter U. Everyone, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and don't miss a single episode. I'd love it if you could give this podcast a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That really helps way more than you know. And please share this show with your friends on social media and let's get the word out there. This episode was sponsored by BitBlockBoom, the Bitcoin conference that's coming to Dallas, Texas. Take a look at the great conference at BitBlockBoom.com. And until next time, this is Gary Leland, the Crypto Podcaster, saying thank you for taking the time to listen. Mm-hmm.